Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. Today we are continuing the topic of co-op mechanics from our last episode. We will again dive deep into the most hidden rulebooks to find almost forgotten treasures of incredible co-op mechanics. This episode is the second and final part about co-op mechanics in card game. If you are interested in co-op mechanics that encourage team play, I recommend listening to last week's episode, where we came up with eight different game mechanics and a bunch of exemplary games. In the second part, we will today focus on mechanics that mitigate the alpha player problem, on mechanics that foster team decision making and mechanics that add another layer of tension to the game. And of course, we will have a bunch of exciting examples again. Get ready, make yourself comfortable and enjoy today's episode. Time to update our quest log. Sometimes game design can be really, really frustrating. For weeks and months I have now been developing my game ideas. When I think about it, almost one year has passed since my first prototype. During that time I have designed a lot of mechanics that felt great in my mind and even better on my whiteboard. I was sure that these mechanics would be the solution to all my design problems and would certainly make it into my final product. Up until I implemented and tested them. Don't get me wrong, most of the mechanics were functional, but just that, they were functional. They didn't break the game or anything, nor were they heavily unbalanced, but they simply weren't fun. The problem is that you just can't visualize or feel the fun of a mechanic on the whiteboard. That means you can't really judge mechanics until you have tested them. The annoying result of this effect is that we have to follow a process of conceptualizing ideas, designing mechanics and create prototypes only to discard them later. I have the feeling that the core essence of game design is not the art of designing mechanics, but the art of discarding things you love, things you spend a lot of time developing, things you were very hyped about, things you really were invested in. An article I recently read aptly called this phenomenon killing your babies and believe me that doesn't feel good. It's frustrating and demotivating. This has often brought me to a point where I would like to throw everything away and give up. So the question I have asked myself in the last week is, is frustration an essential part of game design? And to be honest, I think it is. It is a part of our journey to grow as a game designer. And I think it's also the best way to stand out from all the wannabe designers in the world. We are not giving up when we have to discard our mechanics again and again and again. We are not giving up when we have to kill one of our beloved babies again. We keep pushing forward to find the one mechanic that changed it all. The mechanic with which I fight the most in my game is the resource mechanic. I have had several implementations of mana, stamina, action points, ether or whatever they were called. One resource I tried was a static one, like six uh, action points per turn, or another one was uh, a resource that started low and the player got one more of it each round, exactly like Hearthstone and other games implemented it. During the last week I also tried a resource that you have in your deck, like mana in magic, that you have to draw and use to 
create a resource that you then use for your skills and spells. You had to do that every round, so the mana didn't stick around, it wasn't a permanent resource. Instead, you had to find the right amount of mana, or however the resource was called, every round. The result was that hand management and drawing cards were much more important mechanics than before. But none of the hundreds of resource mechanics I tried felt right. They felt clunky and not really integrated into the other game mechanic. And they were just not making fun. I remember it was in the middle of a night shift when I realized that the next iteration of a resource mechanic just wouldn't work. It was a mechanic I had high expectations for, but I ended up in mana screw and mana flood way too often. I started to implement mechanics to mitigate these effects, but then realized that I tried to rescue a mechanic I was in love with but from a more objective point of view, the mechanic was just not working. I was not only frustrated and ready to give up, I was also tired because it was in the middle of the night. But then I remembered the promise I made to myself and to you, and I pushed a little bit harder. I took the bullet, killed another one of my babies, and was ready to start from the scratch with my resource mechanic. But then I remembered a resource mechanic I tried almost three months ago. I discarded it back then because it was too complex and required too much board space. But with the changes that I've made to the other components of my game, in the meantime, this was no longer an issue. On the contrary, the mechanics fit perfectly into all the other areas of my game that I've incorporated since then. In the same night, I created that prototype and the first test felt very, very good. So, I am in love again with my new old baby, at least until I have to kill it again, maybe. The core message in all that nonsense is don't give up. Even if it's in the middle of the night, there is always a new and hot mechanic to fall in love with, right around the corner. And now for you, the main quest. Okay, let's talk about some co-op mechanics. Last week we started our series of co-op mechanics in card and board game. We defined a co-op game as a game in which a group of players works together as a team towards a shared goal, usually against some kind of AI. And we discussed a list of 8 co-op mechanics that can help to encourage teamwork. I got some nice feedback for last week's episode. Thank you for that. I uh, read through your feedback and based on that I would like to mention three more games that you should uh, have a look at if you are interested in the topic. The first one is The Big Book of Madness, which is a good example for sharing a resource. Each player has three support slots where he or she can place element cards that then can be used by allies to activate spells, acquire new spells or destroy curses for example. But you cannot place any element card you want in one of your support slots. You typically have to spend some additional resource or another element to put one of your cards into the support slot. This means it's not free to cooperate with your ally. The second game I wanted to mention is Shadowrun Crossfire. It has a very interesting assist mechanic. I think it's very similar to the game Dragonfire I talked about last week, but if you are assigning an assist ability for your game, I'm sure you can find some inspiration there as well. The third game I wanted to mention is Spirit Island. Spirit Island was yeah, probably mentioned or recommended by 10 or more people to me. Um, it is one of the hottest games on Board Game Geek at the moment, and it is a very, very good example of asynchronous gameplay. I will also mention this game later in today's episode again. 
So let's continue with our analysis of co-op mechanics. In addition to promoting teamwork, co-op mechanics can also be used for other tasks. Today we are talking about three more of these tasks. The first one is fighting the alpha player problem. The second one is creating interesting team decision situations. And the last one is bringing additional tension to the game. So let's start with fighting the alpha player problem. Quarterbacking, also called the alpha player problem, is easily the number one reason why people don't like co-op game. For some playgroup, the alpha player problem can lead to a situation in which one player takes over the role as a leader and makes decisions for all the players. Of course, this can ruin the game experience for everyone on the table. I have experienced this situation many times before, especially in games where people have to agree on an overall strategy. Good examples of games having problems with quarterbacking are Pandemic and Legends of Andor. Whether or not the alpha player problem occurs depends on two factors. First, it depends on the personalities in the playgroup, something we can barely influence as a game designer. And secondly, if the game rules and mechanics support the alpha player problem, especially any form of joint decision making comes to mind. Since Probably all co-op games involve some form of joint decision making. All co-op games also have potential problems with quarterbacking. That's why some smart designers have been thinking over the past few years about how to counteract this phenomenon. And now we'll take a look at a few of these examples. The first countermeasure is something I call information overload. If you overload your game with so much information when there happens so much that it is no longer possible for a single player to have an overview of the entire game. It will also be difficult for him to make or influence all the decisions on the table. However, this form of countermeasure is not the perfect tool for every co-op game because it naturally increases the complexity of the entire game. This method only makes sense in a very asynchronous game where it is not necessary for every player to have an overview of the entire game in order to make his or her own decisions. A game that comes to mind here is Spirit Island. Spirit Island is a very complex game with a strange theme. Instead of colonizing an island, you are a spirit that wants to defend the island from being colonized by invaders. Imagine that you are playing some kind of force of nature against a KI that behaves like a Settlers of Catan player. Each player represents different spirits of the land, each with its own unique elemental powers and very, very asynchronous ability. Spirit Island does a great job at negating the alpha player problem. There is so much happening at once, so many possibilities and so many decisions to be made that are unique to each person because the game is so asymmetrical. There is just too much information and too many options to process in order to come up with an optimal solution. This game is a perfect example where information overload can make sense to fight the quarterbacking problem. You know what else stops one player from dominating things in a co-op game? Restricting his ability to talk. That's why some co-op games have a rule that restricts table talk between players. In Gloomhaven, for example, you are not allowed to name specific cards or values such as damage and initiative. It isn't allowed to say, I am using massive boulder on initiative 87 to attack ooze number 2 for 3 damage. Instead, you are allowed to say, I'm going to attack this ooze with a slow ranged attack and try to kill it. And you're also not allowed to share the information of your entire hand with your ally. By having not 
all of the relevant information, it becomes more difficult for one player to make decisions for another one. And you know what? Restricting table talk has another beneficial effect. If quarterbacking is the number one problem of co-op games, extensive and unnecessary discussions that take forever are easily number two on our co-op problems list. It can take forever when people talk about how they could combine their cards and abilities in the best possible way. The nice side effect of restricting the table talk is that it can also reduce the playing time of a cooperative game. But occasionally this leads to a situation in which players can't really work together at all. If people play in silence and don't communicate at all, that can easily create a playing experience that was not intended for a co-op game. When you want to use this restriction, the best way to go forward is probably to restrict only some part of the table talk. For example, do not allow players to show each other their hands and maybe limit the amount of direct card referencing as much as possible. Remember, often the fun of co-op games comes from creating strategies together and table talk only enhances this. So you should be careful which aspects of the game you restrict. Another game example where table talk is restricted is Lord of the Rings, the living card game. A slight variation of the restrict table talk rule is a mechanic from the game Commission. Commissioned is a cooperative game for two to six players set in the times of the early Christian church. Players take on the roles of the early Christian apostles and must work together to grow the church. The game has a unique mechanic to deal with quarterbacking, the messenger die. Depending on the result of an eight-sided die, players may be allowed to discuss about potential actions. Or the result could be that they are only able to talk during specific phases. And sometimes they are even not allowed to communicate at all. I really like the way how the messenger die limits the information sharing, but only sometimes. This certainly matches the theme of the game and represents the challenge of persecution of the Christians during that time. If this mechanic could help to reduce the quarterbacking problem to occur only every third round or whatsoever, I think most of the playgroups could live with a solution like that. Another example of having distributed knowledge and limited sharing is the game Mask of Anubis. It's a game that uses the mobile device as a supportive tool. One person has to look through a VR goggles by using his or her mobile device and then describe the dungeon he or she sees to the rest of the team. Since every person is seeing only a part of the maze, no one has the entire knowledge to make the decisions alone. Every player has a unique part of the puzzle that he has to bring to the table. All of the previous examples have in common that they try to restrict the information transfer between individual players. Another possibility is to design the action selection phase of a game in a way that each player has to make decisions on his own. Some games use a real-time component for that. The idea is that everyone plays their hand at the same time, under a certain time constraint. Information is revealed later, what may screw up whatever plans the players had. The time constraint causes the players to make some choices under pressure and sometimes they don't have enough time to check with other players. They have to execute before time runs out. In theory, it's a great mechanic to help eliminate quarterbacking. It also helps to reduce the extensive table talk we discussed before. Some games using a real-time component are 
XCOM the board game, Project Elite or the 5-minute dungeon. But you do not necessarily need real-time pressure. You can also achieve a similar effect by making decisions in parallel, hidden or even random. So that's it for the mechanics that help to counter the quarterbacking problem. I have played games with and without mechanics to counter the quarterbacking problem. And I can definitely say there is a difference. I prefer the games that have some kind of mechanism to control the dominating player, at least to some degree. The next group of co-op mechanics are mechanics that create team decision-making situations. Most co-op games tend to have individual actions which are all working towards a single goal. But there are some ways to enhance this situation. What I mean by that is, what is if players are not taking their actions individually? Or what if they are not working towards a single goal? Maybe there can be multiple goals. Let me show you some examples that can lead to more player interaction. One idea that I think is really innovative and new is having a general pool of characters that can be used or activated by everyone on the table. The advantage is that you can flip around the roles in the team. If you are the tank, for example, you do not always have to take all the beats uh, while the others have uh, fun all the time. One game using this is 8 Epics. 8 Epics is a cooperative dice game in which the players use heroes to overcome crisis. Players have one character that can only be activated by them, but there are also four general characters that can be activated by everyone. That means you get some kind of diversity for your rounds and if your character dies, you stay in the game and can use one of the general characters. But you cannot activate the characters of the other players. Another game that also has group characters and that has been recommended to me is Lost Expedition, but I have not played it yet. Another way to broaden the horizon and to ensure that not all players are always working towards one goal is to introduce multiple goals. These do not have to be assigned to any player, but can be up for discussion. There can be different win or even lose conditions in the game. This creates a situation in which players have to decide together which way they want to go as a team. Sometimes it can even make sense to work on several goals at the same time and postpone the final decision to a later stage in the game. Another way to support team decision making is by simply giving players time to process information. In co-op games, the board can sometimes be very crowded and hard to process. Therefore, I really like having time in a cooperative game to process all the information and time to make the decision. Often an ability or an event triggers when a card enters the battlefield. But this sometimes feels a little bit random because you cannot interact with. So it can be a nice twist if at least some effects are delayed. In Aeon's End, for example, many of the enemies have effects that don't trigger immediately. You can see a bad guy coming at you and you can decide together with your teammates uh, whether you want to address that enemy right now or if you can afford to wait for one or two more turns. The same is true for player actions. It is nice to have the information visible to see what your allies are planning to do this turn. Aeon's End has some sort of face-up programming mechanism, where you place a spell in front of you in one turn, but the effect happens delayed one turn later. If you now combine the delayed 
player spells with the variable turn order of Aeon's End, you get an incredible mechanic. In Aeon's End, a couple of cards in the turn order deck have two different colors on them, and others show the nemesis, who is the bad guy you are trying to defeat. You shuffle those cards up and reveal the top card. If it is a nemesis card, the AI takes their turn. If it is a card with two colors, you as a team can decide which player is going to take that turn. Let's say you reveal a card that is red and yellow, and player one is red and player two is yellow. You can then decide if it is more important to cast the spells that are currently prepared by player one, or the ones that are prepared by player two. Later, if you reveal the other card with the same two colors, the other player takes their turn. It's not like one player gets all the turns. This creates an interesting discussion in the game that doesn't take too long. The decision you have to make is based on the visible spells that are out there on the table. Does it make more sense to heal or to deal a lot of damage in the current situation? The interesting aspect of that decision is that you don't really know when the enemy act for the next time because the turn order deck is random. The flipping of the turn order deck is what creates the additional excitement here for me. So that brings us to the last category of co-op mechanics. Mechanics that bring additional tension to the game. I've loved co-op games ever since I first experienced role-playing. The best adventures were often those where some of the characters had some kind of secret. A mysterious personal mission, for example. Or a personal quest of revenge. Another example from an RPG could be a greedy character that found a big shiny gem in a chest and decides not to tell his teammates about it. These scenarios have often added some excitement to our session, so it's not surprising that similar methods are also used in card and board games to increase the tension of the game. I have put together a few examples for you. The first one is a traitor mechanic. A straight up traitor mechanic is when at least one player has an opposing goal. Typically one player is a betrayer of some kind and the other players are unaware of of the deception. Most games with the traitor mechanics start out fully cooperative and end up being only semi-cooperative. During the course of the game, more and more signs appear that expose the traitor until he or she will be revealed. A good example for that is Battlestar Galactica, where each player is dealt a secret loyalty card from a large stack of them. Since there will be many more cards than players, no one will necessarily be a Cylon, a traitor in that case. Uh, to compound that, halfway through the game, another round of loyalty cards um, are dealt out. So you might have been 100% sure that the player next to you was human, but perhaps yet he isn't anymore. If you're familiar with the TV show, you will understand that this mechanic describes exactly how the characters in the TV show felt. They never knew who was a traitor or not, or if they were maybe a traitor themselves. Other games that have some kind of traitor aspect are Dead of Winter, Betrayal at the House on the Hill, Bang and Werewolf. The next mechanic to bring some tension to a co-op game is a hidden or a personal objective. Through the introduction of personal hidden goals, a completely new layer can be added to a co-op game. Personal goals still allow you to work together as a team, but on the same time they create interesting choices for the players. Players have to balance the needs of the group versus their own. Everyone has to decide how best to contribute to the current situation, but also anticipate what they have to hold back to benefit themselves. In Gloomhaven you have personal goals for each scenario. And a personal goal could be to loot a specific amount of money during the scenario, or to take only short rests or to be the first who kills an enemy. These personal goals and the co-op goals are typically somewhat intention and create interesting trade-offs and influence the way you act. Another way to add tension to a game is to 
add hidden event triggers. This is an aspect that would typically be handled by a dungeon master in an RPG. The tension can be increased by the fact that the affected player is unaware of the trigger. But how can we do that without the dungeon master? I found the perfect example in the crossroad cards of the game Dead of Winter. So many people have told me that they love the crossroad cards in Dead of Winter. Therefore I have looked them up and watched some game reviews. And I have to agree, they look awesome. But what are crossroad cards? I would call them personal hidden event triggers. These are cards that reveal a piece of story or add an event to the game. The interesting thing is that they trigger when a player performs a specific action during his or her turn. But you do not see that coming. The player next to you is holding the crossroad card for you and has to stop you if you trigger the card. An example. The player to your left is holding your crossroad card which says something like if this player moves to a new location something happens. So if you do that during your turn, the other player stops you immediately and reads the effect of the card, which is usually something like, while traveling you bump into another survivor who wants to trade for food, or you get ambushed by zombies. The player then gets to choose between two options of how to deal with the card. You could have the choice to trade the food for medicine or ignore the card. I love that mechanic. And from what I've heard, everybody else does too. I need to implement something similar for my game as well. The last mechanic I wanted to talk about is some kind of secret information sharing. Um, messenger letters from Runebound are an example here. You could put some money, skill or quest on a letter card and send it to another player. And the next time this player goes to a town or a city, he or she receives the content of the letter. For example, the content of the letter could be a secret in another game, but linked to a condition. For example, visiting a city, finding a specific person to decipher a cliff or cracking a mechanism. This could lead to players assigning each other their own little side quest. Overall, I find it exciting when players can share secret information with each other in a way that is not talking. I think the design space for a mechanic like this is quite large. And finally, the conclusion. That brings us to the end of today's podcast episode. I've been looking through the rulebooks of so many co-op games in the last weeks and generated a lot of ideas to increase the fun of playing together and to focus the table talk on the important aspect. I think a co-op game lives from the fact that players exchange ideas and forge tactics together. That's why a relatively strict restriction of the table talk is out of the question for me. I find the idea that individual players take on the role of the dungeon master for the fate of their fellow players super exciting. Remember the example of the crossroad cards in Dead of Winter. I'm curious what else could be done with this idea in mind. I hope I was able to give you some inspiration as well with these two episodes about co-op mechanics. If so, I would be very happy if you could leave me a short review on iTunes. It only takes a few minutes and helps me a lot. Or you could get in touch by visiting my website nerdlikeaboss.com or find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook with the hashtag nerdlikeaboss. Thank you for listening and until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss.